Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. After a day of dramatic testimony and many unanswered questions remaining, the Senate Judiciary Committee votes on whether to approve Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh for full Senate confirmation. I believed he was going to rape me. I tried to yell for help. When I did, Brett put his hand over my mouth to stop me from yelling. This is what terrified me the most and has had the most lasting impact on my life. It was hard for me to breathe, and I thought that Brett was accidentally going to kill me. And in the third installment of our series, DC in the Era of Climate Change, a controversial proposed electric substation near a school has become a flashpoint for community empowerment in a rapidly gentrifying city. I don't want to gamble with my daughter's future and we find out 10, 15 years down the road, oh, we actually, okay, now we have enough studies to show that it really is harmful. But then look at all the people that are living with the costs of that decision. All that, Professor Gerald Horn, the writer Walter Mosley, and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And as we go to broadcast, the expected vote by the Senate Judiciary Committee on the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court is underway. In the meantime, protests continue daily here and around the country in opposition to the Kavanaugh nomination. And these rallies did not stop on Thursday, as Christine Blasey Ford told the Senate committee that she is, quote, 100 percent sure, end quote, that Kavanaugh sexually assaulted and attempted to rape her when they were both in high school. On Thursday, Tarana Burke, founder of the Me Too movement, addressed protesters outside in the rain after hundreds had just rallied inside the Hart Senate office building. This is what the movement is. Yes. yes. They will call it all kind of things on the news. They will report about it in all kind of ways. Look around. Look next to you. Look behind you. We are the movement. All of the people who stood up and said Me Too, all of the people who said we believe survivors, all of the people who took off of work, who are watching at home, who are standing in the rain, this is the movement. Listen, we don't owe these people our stories. We generously give our stories away. We don't owe them anything. This is not our burden to bear. We've carried it with us, we've told our stories, we've used our hashtags. 
We've marched, we sang, we screamed, we yelled. Lay your burden down. It is not a burden to bear. Earlier this week, Code Pink Women for Peace put the focus on how U.S. policies are impacting women outside the U.S., particularly in Iran, which is targeted by the United States for new economic sanctions. Chantel James has more. On Tuesday night at Busboys and Poets 450 K Street location, a panel discussion titled How Sanctions Impact Women and the Women's Movement in Iran was held before a packed room. Panelists were Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, Nazil Fati, author and former New York Times correspondent, Ferry Malik Madani, film director and producer, and Sahan Tamasebi, director of Femina. At a time when Trump argues before the UN for isolating Iran, the conversation explored the impact of sanctions on Iranian women and the state of women's lives in the country since the revolution. The panelists argued that Iranians are not the enemy and that the impact of sanctions on the lives of its people extends even once the sanctions have been lifted. Danzio Fatih explains this impact further, telling those gathered that reform to the legal system in Iran that would grant women war rights is not even possible when people have no diapers for their children and the sick do not have their medicine. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. And speaking of Iran, I had the chance to sit down with Professor Gerald Horn on Thursday, and we discussed both the laughter and derision at President Trump on the world stage at the United Nations and the tears, sobbing, and yelling by a Supreme Court nominee speaking before Congress on a national stage. Here I am with Professor Gerald Horn here in downtown D.C. After a pretty tumultuous day, or I should say even week, because we had Donald Trump go to the United Nations and really put on what the Iranian president described rightly as a kind of display of Nazism in terms of our relationship to the whole world and our invasions and our right to do that. And then we had this total meltdown by a Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, in what many of us saw as this meltdown of white male elitism and just not being able to handle being challenged. Well, in both cases, we're talking about privilege. In the first instance, we're talking about imperial privilege. In the second instance, we're talking about an offshoot of imperial privilege, which, of course, is race privilege and gender privilege, male supremacy in the first place. With regard to Iran, uh, it's striking to note that Mr. Trump, in some ways, was outstripped by his national security advisor, John Bolton, who talked about Tehran having hell to pay unless it towed the U.S. line. It's remarkable to note that just a few days ago, there was an attack on an Iranian military parade that led to dozens of deaths in Iran. In 2017, there was an attack on the Iranian parliament that led to a similar amount of bloodshed. It's striking to note that Mr. Trump's has promised that he will be tightening sanctions on Iran, will expect the European Union to do the same, this will be quite a test for the European Union, that is to say, whether or not they're going to be a a puppet for Uncle Sam, or whether they're going to stand on their feet and be independent. 
As of now, there are signs towards the latter. Uh, they talked about enacting a, a barter regime with the Iranians, that is to say, circumventing the U.S. dollar by bartering Iranian oil for a like amount of uh, European Union goods. They're also talking about uh, trying to establish the euro as an alternative uh, to the U.S. dollar. So we'll have to keep our eyes upon that, as we'll have to keep our eyes upon the fact that Mr. Trump also met with Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, uh, this week at the United Nations. And surely you can be certain that they were cooking up a further conflict uh, with Iran. Iran wasn't the only target of Trump, also China and Venezuela. And these are very serious issues. Well, first, with regard to Venezuela, the New York Times had an article a few days ago about how in 2017, the Trump regime was meeting with dissident military officers in Caracas with the aim of coordinating a military overthrow of the Maduro regime. At the same time, it was announced this week that a number of neighbors of Venezuela will be taking the Maduro regime to the International Criminal Court. They're invoking this discredited doctrine of responsibility to protect, which was used in 2011 to overthrow the Gaddafi regime. That is to say, they're arguing that someone has to protect the Venezuelan citizenry against the Maduro regime, uh, which would presumably lead to a similar kind of military invasion of Venezuela, presumably from these neighbors that are taking Venezuela to the ICC. Obviously, I'm sure listeners uh, note the contradiction about uh, Mr. Trump trashing the ICC when it comes to a possible uh, investigation of U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan and elsewhere, and then trying to use the ICC when it comes to trying to overthrow the Maduro regime. The situation in China, with regard to China, might be the most serious uh, of, of them all. Not only the uh, trade sanctions, but the fact that uh, the United States is contemplating uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in weapon sales to Taiwan, the rebel province that uh, China claims as its own. This comes in the context of jousting in the South China Sea between the Chinese military and the U.S. military. This comes in the wake of military maneuvers on the Russian-Chinese border with Russian-China coordinating their militaries, hundreds of thousands of troops, with Washington feel, feeling that those kinds of maneuvers are actually aimed at the United States of America. The rhetoric is becoming more heated on the U.S. side with regard to China. And I'm afraid to say that it's not outlandish to rule out the possibility of some sort of military conflict between the United States and China. Here in D.C. this week, I know that you were probably riveted to the screen on Thursday in terms of the, the hearings for the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Now, I know that in terms of your own you know, schooling and then being a professor, you've definitely come into contact with the white male elite, young white men who come from privileged backgrounds, went to private schools. So when you saw the testimony or and statement by Kavanaugh on Thursday, what was your take? My take was, first of all, with regard to the first half of the hearing, I found that Dr. Blasey Ford was a persuasive and indeed compelling witness. 
With regard to Judge Kavanaugh, I expected him at any moment to talk about a high-tech lynching, uh, invoking the words of Clarence Thomas some 27-odd years ago. He went on the offensive. He impugned the integrity of the Democrats. He suggested that there was some sort of vast left-wing conspiracy. And it's interesting that the Republicans were quite keen to suggest that there were, in their words, two victims. That is to say, they did not want to attack Dr. Blasey Ford, presumably feeling that they want to make sure that the Euro-American women who are of a centrist political position uh, might not be alienated. And so therefore, they did not attack her. They cast her as a victim and Justice Kavanaugh as a victim. I have to say that uh, becoming familiar with the Ivy League as a teenager, I was not very surprised by the white supremacy that I experienced. But I have to say I was a bit taken aback by the misogyny, particularly towards uh, Euro-American women and the contempt uh, for Euro-American women. uh, That really took me aback. And I think it helped to shape my consciousness, not only with regard to uh, opposition to male chauvinism and male supremacy, but, but also with regard to getting a deeper understanding of the kind of privilege that these men of European descent feel that they are destined to exercise. I think that in their heart of hearts, they feel that their right-wing politics is what helped to dispossess the Native Americans and enslave the Africans, and that therefore they built this country from their point of view, and that they have a right, almost a divine right to rule. It's almost a throwback to monarchies of the 18th and 17th century. So uh, Justice Kavanaugh, I don't think, did himself any favors, at least from my point of view, with regard to his rather aggressive approach uh, at that particular hearing. And uh, I'll be interested to see what Mr. Trump says in his memoir about the blubbering and the crying of Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, during that hearing, which was really quite something. And also, I think that you were struck by the deference that the committee gave Ford as opposed to how Anita Hill was treated 27 years ago. And do you think that just the time that has passed and the Me Too movement and the, the criticism that the Senate committee received for that treatment had something to do with the change or is there more to it than that? I think that you're on the money. I think movement matters. The Me Too movement matters. But we would be naive to ignore the race factor. The fact that uh, Anita Hill is a woman of African descent means in this country that she's not entitled to respect. She is not entitled to the kind of kid glove treatment that Dr. Blasey Ford received this morning. And I think that it's more than the passage of time. I think there is a question of racism involved as well. Okay, so looking forward, uh, and I suppose we we'll kind of bounce back to the international scene. Uh, what are you looking at this week? Well, the situation with China—it's a very dire situation, and 
I'm looking to see what kind of retaliatory moves China is going to make. I mean, for example, will they dump U.S. Treasury bills or halt the purchase of U.S. Treasury bills, which help to finance the United States government, everything from the Pentagon to the post office to food stamps? Uh, If that happens, the United States may have to either raise taxes or cut programs, neither route, obviously, Washington does not want to take. So I should also say one more point uh, about these Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, If our liberal friends are correct, and I think they are, that this uh, Kavanaugh appointment will be a disaster. And apparently, according to the pundits, uh, unless there is some sort of mistake, he will be approved within the next week or so. It'll be catastrophic, as they suggest. But I think that that should lead us to rethink how we got to this point. We can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again and then lamenting the fiasco, the debacle, the catastrophe without any fundamental rethink. And I think that's the charge of the civil rights community, although I'm not going to hold my breath until they decide to accept that charge. I wanted to ask you what you think about the theory that Obama didn't fight hard enough to for Merrick Garland because he wanted to hold out this the specter of the Supreme Court appointment to help Hillary Clinton. In other words, people would be able to say, well, look, you know, you have to vote for her at least because of the Supreme Court. You have to support her because of the Supreme Court and that he and because they said he didn't really fight that hard. He didn't he didn't he didn't threaten to shut down the government. He he didn't he didn't do any of those things that if if it was like really going to the mat, he could have done to basically say, what do you mean you're not going to at least give my nominee an up or down vote? You know, he couldn't even he couldn't even get that. He couldn't even he couldn't get anything. Well, I look forward to reading Mr. Obama's memoirs. Perhaps he'll provide a credible explanation. But uh, Mr. Obama obviously has a, a lot of issues to apologize for. I mean, I'm going to be speaking next week at the organization founded by Carter G. Woodson, the Association for the Study of Now African-American Life and History, formerly Negro Life and History. And one of the things I'm going to do, I'm going to get down on my knees and apologize uh, to Africa on behalf of black Americans for paying taxes to the Obama government that then helped to create this catastrophe in Libya in 2011. Uh, your listeners may know about what's happening in Tawarga, uh, which was a bastion of support for the Gaddafi regime. Many dark-skinned people now subjected to what human rights groups call a genocide, not to mention uh, Libya being turned into a gateway for uh, migration from sub-Saharan Africa into Europe and then people drowning the Mediterranean. This was all a result of a war that should never have happened, that was possibly illegal, and that happened under the Obama watch. And it's quite ironic, if not paradoxical, that the first black president, quote-unquote, presided over such a debacle. Well, we'll keep watch on those same issues with you. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, in person. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. (music) 
In climate news, a coalition of dozens of community organizations joined D.C. Council member Mary Che this week to show support for the Clean Energy D.C. Act, which, if passed, will transition D.C. to 100 percent clean electricity by 2032, while investing in energy efficiency, creating groundbreaking building standards, funding local programs to help low-income residents, and make the city a sustainable place to live. Che originally introduced the legislation in July, with a majority of the council either sponsoring or supporting it. The introduction of this bill is the first step in the fulfillment of a serious commitment that the district has made, a commitment to drastically reduce and eventually eliminate our contribution to the disastrous effects of climate change. As everybody in this room uh, well knows, the fight to reduce climate change is the most important environmental issue of our day. It is the moral issue of our time. But we have to fight not only against climate change, but we have to fight against ignorance and political backwardness, which is being led out of the White House. Che added that a key component of the proposed law would make renewable energy the default option on the utility bills of D.C. residents who would need to opt out of wind and solar in order to be powered by fossil fuels. More on climate change in D.C. after headlines. In culture and media, musical artists Ayana Gregory, Tamika Love-Jones, and Kaba Soul Singer are among those scheduled to perform Saturday, September 30th at the Howard Theater in Northwest D.C. This Founders Day celebration is being sponsored by the organization Appeal, Inc. to continue to raise money for startup costs for what is planned to be a national black community-owned and operated credit union. Tickets and information are at appealinc.org. Also on September 29th and 30th is the grand opening in downtown D.C. of the Eaton, which combines the hospitality industry with social justice. The 209-room hotel, restaurant, cafe, and spa also includes a co-working space and a radio station that uplifts the voices of progressive activists and activism. Sebi Medina Tayak, the Eaton's impact strategist, told WPFW's Taking Action that the opening weekend's radio programming is focusing on environmental justice issues in frontline communities across the United States. On Friday, we have a panel on environmental justice. We're bringing out some water protectors from across the country, Doreen Bird from the Pueblo Action Alliance um, in New Mexico. Brian Paras from the Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services. And then we have going to have a panelist from Empower DC as well. And it's mm-hmm. just going to be connecting the environmental justice struggle from Standing Rock to Chaco Canyon to Houston, you know, Houston's humongous refinery economy to things that are happening here in DC in our own city that we might not initially see as the same kind of struggles, but actually has everything to do with it. Um, You know, what what indigenous, immigrant, and black folks are going through across the country, west to east, is is the same struggle. More information is at festival.eatonworkshop.org. And on the small screen, the new documentary Jane Fonda in Five Acts is airing on HBO. Susan Lacey's revealing movie on the life of actress and activist Jane Fonda is intimate enough to let Fonda tell her own story and distant enough to capture the sweep of late 20th century U.S. history that her life represents. 
Fonda is likable as she reveals her contradictions, being of the feminist generation but still defined by the men in her life, being a privileged white woman who at age 32 was still ignorant of Vietnam, being a fitness guru plagued by bulimia and body shaming by her famous father, the actor Henry Fonda. If this movie was a book, it would be called a page turner as it documents how one person, yes, a privileged person, made the decision to be an activist. In this clip from the movie, she talks about what kind of activist she strived to be. You want to know how people organize? You go to Detroit and you go to meetings with union organizers. You know, you, you want to find out what it's like to live near a toxic dump? You go there. I remember the moment that I made the decision about what kind of an activist I want to be. You don't want to be someone who lives at the top of the hill, helping people down at the bottom of the hill. You want to be down at the bottom of the hill with the people. Otherwise, how do you know what to do? Susan Lacey's previous documentary subjects include director Steven Spielberg and writers Alice Walker and August Wilson in the PBS American Masters series. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, author Walter Mosley, stay with us. is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Everum. the author walter mosley is touring in support of his new novel john woman and he's coming to dc october 3rd for a program and reception sponsored by sankofa books and sankofa.com at woodward hall in northwest dc 
This is part one of my interview with Walter Mosley. In your new novel, John Woman, you return to themes that I think you frequently explore of crime, mystery, and of people kind of obscuring who they really are. So I'm wondering if there's something about these themes that resonate for you in American society. Well, I'd have to agree with what you said first, and I'm not sure I do. Okay. I mean, it, it, this is a novel about a deconstructionist historian who understands the impact of history on human beings and that human beings, it is impossible for them to really understand their history. And going even further, it says that those human beings can only understand their, their history as it, is, as it unfolds in the future. Now, that said, I'm not writing a book that's dry and intellectual about, you know, discussing history for, you know, 350 pages. What, what it is, it's a book about a, a real man and a real life, a black male hero, as, 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 I'm, as I'm want to do, who is living his life, and these ideas are, you know, at, at the edges of that life. But in the center is who he truly is. Now, things happen. He has sex. Somebody gets murdered. Things happen. But... To call it like a, a mystery or, or crime thing, I think would be a mistake. And it, it's a problem for me because, you know, I live in capitalism. Capitalism, what it says is that you are defined uh, by your specialty. And so, so I, have a lot of pe- I have a lot of people who refuse to review the book because they call it a mystery. And, you know, it makes me so mad that I can't even say the words that I say to them when they say it. Oh, wow. Well, I didn't mean to imply that, but but I think that there's some elements there. Just, I mean, the, the truth is, there is no novel that's not a mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's why you keep pay, uh, turning the page, if you, right? If, if, if you already know everything from, like, page two, he did this, he did this, and then, and then this happened, and said, now let me tell you the story, you stop reading the book. Exactly. So, as you mentioned, uh, the main character in the book, John Woman, is an unconventional history professor. And his, his father taught him that the person who controls the narrative of history controls his own fate. And I can't help but draw some parallels to, to that idea and the things that you were mentioning right before we started the interview and you were talking about the Me Too movement and everything that's unfolding in D.C. this week. So I want you to have a chance to pick up on that because it was like I, I interrupted what you were going to say about the Me Too movement. I have various you know, responses and reactions to the Me Too movement because the Me Too movement exists individually and every individual who belongs to or responds to it. But I think that when the, 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 what I feel is wonderful, that Me Too has gotten to a level of such power that they can even question a Democratic Cong- I mean, a, a Republican Congress trying to nominate a Republican like member of the Supreme Court and they have to stop and, and pay obeisance to me too. That, that is such a big difference in American politics that it's, it's, it's worthwhile just to sit back and say, oh, shoot, we should have a holiday for this. Well, also, just this idea of the person controlling the narrative of history, you know, getting to, back to that theme in the book, it also occurs to me that it, well, it resonates for me you know, looking at the Brett Kavanaugh uh, nomination process, because it seems that he and many of those trying to push him onto the court are seemingly trying to control the narrative of his of his history. But the truth is leaking out. 
Well, you know, and, and, this is, and, and this is the difference between democracy and not democracy. If you go back to China, when, whenever there's a revolution and, and, a, and a new group takes over China, they just rewrite history. There's no question about, like, you know, let's have, a, let's have a, uh, you know, some kind of trial, let's have some kind of meeting, let's discuss it. No, we just rewrite history. We were the heroes, you were the villains. That's the way it is. You know, and, and, and what we're doing now is we're, we're living in democracy. And so democracy, you know, but still, you know, tries to understand history. The truth is human beings don't understand history. Never, and they never have. Well, I don't know. I think that, I think a lot of people listening to our show will say that America has rewritten history or obscured history or not allowed the real history to come forth. So let me, let me just say, I don't believe in the existence of white people. There's no white race. There's no white country. There's no white language. There's no white religion. However, these, 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 these white people have this completely destroyed themselves because they've negated Native American history, African American history, Sino American history. And, and with, if you negate the pieces of the history that created you, then your history is a lie. And that's a, that, I mean that's what the book is about. That that leaves you know the you know the the, the, the Kavanaugh hearings. But but the the truth is is and, and my character says, look, you will never find the truth. You will only be able to attempt to find the truth. And how hard that attempt is is who you are. Now this is a black man saying this to people, right? By the by, I don't believe in the existence of black men either. But um, you know because I know you know where we came from and and where we're going. But 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 the idea of my book is to talk about people like Doc Ben, who 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 went up against the Egyptologist and won. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, they're still like on this whole theme of history and who controls the narrative of history. You know, I was repeatedly drawn to. Uh, in preparing to talk to you, I was repeatedly drawn to the ideas you explore both in your fiction and then in your nonfiction books. And so I saw that in working on the chain gang, shaking off the dead hand of history, you observed how the historical disenfranchisement of African people in the U.S. is a toxin that corrodes all it touches. So I keep going back to these themes as I watch this, what's happening in D.C. this week. And, and it occurs to me as a black woman that the... The rape of African-Americans while enslaved and for more than a century afterward is also a toxin and that I think has created a particular rape culture in this country. It is a toxin and we need to understand it as that. However, we have to understand our own involvement in it because there's a moment where we can say, no, no, what you're saying is a lie. What you're pretending is a lie. And my life, my importance, and you have people like, you know, Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, Gwendolyn Brooks, the extraordinary June Jordan. You have them saying, uh-uh, man, I ain't listening to that stuff. Because I know, I know who I am. I know what I did. I know where, where I'm going. I hear my words, my life, my history, my religion in your words. I know it. The problem, the bigger problem, is that we don't know it. What do you mean? I, that what there's a that you know I mean listen there's it, one thing to talk about being a victim there's problems with that you can say you're a victim of history but the truth is if you know the truth and you and you speak the truth like June did I mean June she's like she's the ideal uh, writer I think 
who will say, I know who I am. I know what I did. I know what your world is, and it's not my world. Doc Ben is the same thing. I think that, that the idea is the first thing we need to know, we need to do, and we need to educate is our own people to say, man, you have a history, and you have a big part in who we are. And that's what you need to know, and that's what you need to be able to say. A lot of times, you know, it, it stops at the point, well, I'm a victim of them taking over my history. So they can't take over your history if you know what your history is. Oh, exactly. Oh, exactly. I don't, I don't think that by acknowledging the history, it has to take automatically the posture of victimhood. I think that it's empowering. And I'm just... I guess I'm really what I'm trying to bring out is that empowering aspect of it to just talk about how you can have one group raped with impunity or just attacked with impunity and then not have it spread to the larger society without having some impact on the whole society. You know, starting next with maybe other other people who are next in line for that kind of attack. Well, you know, and, and that moment, it's, I mean, really. We don't even have time to discuss what you just said, <laughs> because it's so important to begin to understand. Like you know, like because I could just take two steps back and say that one of the greatest things America has ever done culturally is jazz, and jazz is the black experience. Even if there is no such thing as black people, jazz is the black experience. And like you know, whether I got raped, whether I got killed, whether I got kept out of that job, whether I, whether whether I, they prejudiced against me, it doesn't matter because what I created recreates the world. Who who I am is who you are, and you don't even know it. That was part one of my interview with the author, Walter Mosley. He's out touring in support of his new novel, John Woman. And he's coming to D.C. October 3rd for that program and reception sponsored by Sankofa Books at Woodward Hall in Northwest D.C. We'll have part two of our interview next week. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. When a coalition of community groups organized that day of action this week in support of the Clean Energy D.C. Act, Tiffany Aziz, a mom, stepped to the podium and told of her fight against construction of a large electric substation in her northwest D.C. neighborhood, adjacent to the Walker Jones Education Campus that her daughter Paris attends. I spoke to Aziz afterwards. June 12th, the day of the Caps Parade, I was at work and I was thinking, it's no way I'm going to get on the metro with all of that, you know, going on. So I walked home. And that day when I was walking next to the garden and and pretty close to the library, that's when I was stopped by um, one of the church members of Holy Redeemer. And she informed me of what was going on. Um, Pepco's plan, because mind you, I had... 
how would I have known? Um, the school never told us. Pepco never had an um, inf- informational meeting with us. And they kind of left us out. Even in their presentation, there's nowhere there to say Walker Jones' parents had any type of meeting. They met with other business owners. They met with the pastors. They did not meet with Walker Jones' parents. And um, not even any type of evidence to say they attempted to. So once this church member told me, I immediately went home and researched what she had told me mm-hmm. and found it was true. Not only did I find it was true, I found out the um, potential health dangers with um, electromagnetic fields and the exposure levels. And I just started to read and, and educate myself with that information. I became a scientist overnight. I was turning off my Wi-Fi at night. I'm like, kids, the electronics <laughs> should come off the bed, so... Don't put it next. Don't sleep next to your phone. Yeah, I'm like, oh, no, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do that. So, and those dangers are pretty, they're major findings, major findings of um, high levels of EM or any level of EMF Mm -hmm. exposure to a child causes childhood leukemia. There have been findings of breast cancer, brain cancer, dementia, fetal deaths, and Alzheimer's, you know, Lou Gehrig's, Mm -hmm. you know, things that we're already suffering or facing within our community. We don't need any additions. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. So what's happened since then? Um, well, you said you became yeah. a scientist overnight. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Then ne- very next week I hosted a town hall meeting in which I, I've, Im- I've invited like everyone because just to give them that awareness. I've invited the uh, council members' offices. I've invited like Department of Health, Department of Energy, um, anybody that will have any piece to this, um, this situation. I invited parents. I invited the school officials in which no one, <laughs> none of them showed up. I invited community members. I literally took flyers and went by myself um, on foot and handed them out even to the business owners. And I I think I had a pretty good showing that came out just to inform them of what was going on, what Pepco is planning to do. And to my knowledge and to my surprise, most of them were already made aware and already knew. Mm -hmm. So where are things now in terms of community pressure and... When you when you look at the situation, what what are you trying to have happen now? Um, I'm trying to get more people on board with opposing the substation. I, I've been speaking at the different ANCs to trying to give them a, a ear to where the what the community is saying. Um, in this particular community, this low income community, it seems that there is a lost voice and people you know don't know how to utilize their voices. Walker Jones, unfortunately, is a school that is lowly low parent repre- represented. So you have about seventy percent wards of the state. There's no PTA. There's no PTO. They even took. A way the one-on-one parent-teacher conferences you know so again you know the parents there they're not as vocal and when I talk to them they'll be vocal with me but I'm trying to encourage them to come out to say something to help to mm-hmm. protest mm-hmm. to think about the future not only of your children as well which is most important but the future of the community the garden the farm things that we don't even know as moms but our, our children love to frequent mm-hmm. you know they can say hey you know mom I was able to visit the chickens today mm-hmm. you know how many kids can say that I know myself as a child couldn't and so those types of things so what I'm doing is, is just trying to continue to raise awareness in the community, get people to sign petitions in opposition of Pepco's plan, and hopefully stop this infrastructural injustice. Even though Tiffany, Aziz, and other parents say they are just hearing about the substation, 
PEPCO spokesperson Christina Harper said planning for the substation has been underway for almost three years and that there have been meetings with neighborhood commissions, businesses, and even churches for the project. She said that PEPCO Exelon operates 49 substations of various sizes around D.C. Some are about the size of a house and others like the proposed unit in the 100 block of K Street Northwest are larger. Harper cited findings from health researchers like the World Health Organization as proof that EMF radiation is not harmful and said that the levels of EMF that would be emitted from the proposed substation are small and do not pose a health hazard to the public. But Will Jones, another parent, is not waiting for tests of the proposed substation or taking the PEPCO-endorsed tests as the last word, since there are other scientists that dispute the claim that EMF is harmless. He and his wife moved their one-year-old daughter, Imani, away from the neighborhood. I lived right next to the lot, so looking out my window, I would see the and lot. That was that? right there, First where and K Street, and I was in the Severn on K. Um, is that Northwest? Yeah, First and K Northwest. I mean, it's right past the border of uh, where North Capitol is, so just over into the Northwest Quadrant. Mm-hmm. However, what's unique about that block is that, again, surrounding that block on Forsyth is low-income and mixed-income affordable housing. And so I found out when, you know, I generally keep abreast of just the news of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So became aware when D.C. did the trade land trade uh, for part of the stadium that Go had plans. I wasn't exactly sure what they were, but they had plans for that lot. Um, and then as I was living there, we got notice that no more parking in the parking lot that was there because Pepco was going to develop it. And that's when I began to look more into it. And so, you know, they tell everybody, get your cars out of there. And then we found out the garden was going to be gone as well. And we found out it was going to be this 35,000 square foot uh, electrical substation that was going to be placed there. And uh, I've heard you talk a little bit about that. So what is your understanding about what the substation is and the kind of danger it poses to the community. So basically the substation, Pepco claims, and I'm using the word claims because there's reports that show otherwise, but they claim that there's an increased uh, electrical need in the neighborhood um, due to the new development. And so they have to place the substation exactly in that spot to be able to provide adequate energy for everybody. Um, the interesting thing about that is there are vacant within a quarter mile radius of the lot they chose there are other empty lots that are in more business sectors probably they would cost more money is is my guess why they don't want to develop elsewhere but they are going to place it again in the middle of of our our community so that's something that you know again really see as a negative you mentioned the health risks so there have been several studies that show that there's a possible uh linkage between ems or electrical magnetical electromagnetic fields that come from substations in in high energy power lines in that they could pose health risks to kids. Uh, There is risks of childhood leukemia, um, cancer, and other things. Pepco will say, you know, well, the studies are unproven. It's not 100% sure yet. Um, But, you know, as I often say, I don't want to gamble with my daughter's future. And we find out 10, 15 years down the road, oh, we actually, okay, now we have enough studies to show that it really is harmful. But then look at all the people that are living with the costs of that uh, of that decision. And so really, that's from the health perspective. uh, That's our angle that there are um, questions out there that are in the existing literature on, on this area saying that there are potential health risks uh, associated with these EMFs. Um, And then just in terms of social justice, again, the rest of K Street is getting 
all this positive development, gyms, restaurants, stores and whatnot. And it's this one location that's been chosen to have something that at best is just going to be a passive building taking up the lot that at best, Mm -hmm. uh, that's all it's going to be. And so really we believe that this is a just a modern day example of systemic discrimination that our communities face having to have these types of industrial developments in our communities when nobody else wants them in theirs. I will say my wife and I we made a decision to move and this definitely played into our calculations as we're thinking do we want to stay here do we want to find another place so we've since moved but where we were at the time it would be looking out of our living room window uh, it would be right beneath us. We lived on the sixth floor, so we would look down and we would see the lot where the substation would be. Mm-hmm. So this specific lot, um, it's been an initiative on the part of Bible Way Church that's in the area on New Jersey and New York Avenue, which actually was my great-grandfather that founded that church. Um, so it's you know a family church. But the building, so the Golden Rule Apartments, Golden Rule Plaza, Saverna on K and Saverna, are all mixed income or affordable, 100% affordable housing that's been uh, placed on that block. And so the the vacant lot is in the center of these uh, four buildings. There's also a senior home uh, on the corner as well, senior residential living, I believe. Uh, so that's the other building that's surrounding it. And then on the other side of the lot is Walker Jones Elementary School. And so these are the buildings that are surrounding this vacant lot. And again, that's the one that was chosen by Pepco to have this development. And if we look again, if you take a mile drive down K, not even a mile, you know, a half mile drive down K Street, you'll see other developments that have been done in the past couple of years that are, you know, things you want in your community. Again, like a, a gym, a restaurant or a right, store. Right, right. Swap. So, the, yeah, the land swap is they were trying, I guess, or are trying to make a stadium for D.C. United, the D.C. soccer team. And so D.C. wanted property that was over by, I believe it's called Buzzard Point, um, where they're going to develop the where they wanted to develop the stadium, the soccer stadium. And then D.C. had this was government land that was uh, where the vacant lot is now that was prior to them giving to Pepco. It was government land that was there. Mm-hmm. And again, it could have been utilized uh, repurposed for any other positive thing, but it was given to Pepco. Okay, so the city did that. Yes. All right. I see that soccer stadium going up over there, and there is a Pepco facility across the street from there, and it may, would make more sense for this kind of facility to be there. Yes, and I think yeah. I think what and that was the definitely agree hundred percent these types of developments. You know, to the extent that they are. Is my daughter Monty. Yeah. Uh, she's one years old. Hello. A little over one, and so definitely want to see a healthy future for her That's as well. Right. Everything for Imani or Monty or Imani. Imani. Everything yeah. for Imani. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so Everything. we would definitely prefer to see these types of developments to the extent that they are necessary outside of densely populated areas, outside of again places where senior living um, and uh, in an elementary school. It would be wonderful to have those types of developments in some other location, but that's not what was decided in this instance. And again, Pepco is going to say that based on different needs, it had to be within X mile radius. And to be honest, that's above my depth to say where 
exactly in the city they have to place substations. But I do know, again, that there are other vacant lots within a quarter mile radius that are in business sectors that were not selected for this development. Okay. Anything is possible. Um, It's about the will to to make it happen. Mm -hmm. There are lots of innovative, you know, tech technology companies uh, that are doing all kinds of incredible things with clean energy. Um, And so anything is possible. But uh, Pepco obviously is looking for whatever is cheapest, easiest to do, most available. That's Mm -hmm. the case in this particular area. I would say even if the lot was chosen for to say have solar panels or something like that, that's definitely better in terms of we're looking at from an environmental perspective. But I still am going to fight for my community to be able to have the types of development that the rest of the street is having. Solar panels, put them on top of buildings. If there's other vacant lots, maybe where people aren't living. I mean, you don't want to look out your window and have all that, you know, uh, just looking out at a field of solar panels, it's not the nicest view. So, you know, those things may be possible, but our desire would definitely be no type of industrial development in that location, rather something that's going to give to the community, um, something that maybe can employ people someplace you can go in and make community connections, these types of things. The two-acre site that the proposed substation will sit on was city property until 2015, but Mayor Muriel Bowser sold it to Pepco as part of a land swap so that the city could acquire property needed for the soccer stadium that is now D.C. United's Audi Field. Because the city sold the land to Pepco in the middle of this residential neighborhood and next to a school, I asked the mayor's office if it is still involved to perhaps find another location or address the community's concerns. I also asked about complaints from Aziz and Jones who say their calls and email messages to the mayor's office have not been returned. And the statement I received back from the office of the deputy mayor for planning and economic development, Brian T. Kenner, was this, quote, the district sold the land parcel at K Street Northwest at fair market value. For more information regarding Pepco's future development plans, please contact Pepco, end quote. Now, PEPCO needs approval from the city's Public Service Commission and Zoning Board in order to go forward. Now, on Thursdays during the rush hour, Aziz, Jones, and others in their small group of activists hold a weekly protest of the substation at the site of the garden. This is in the 100 block of K Street, as I mentioned. So this week, Aziz's youngest daughter, Paris, who attends the adjacent Walker Jones School, joined the action with her mother and Keith Silver, who served four terms as district neighborhood commissioner. The trio shielded themselves from the steady rain underneath a bus shelter that sits in front of the garden. Paris Aziz. Paris Aziz. Okay. Hi, Paris. So I'm here from Pacifica Radio to write about the proposed substation that would eliminate your garden. So tell me a little bit about your relationship to the garden. My relationship to the garden means that I love the garden. We go to the garden. I love the animals and the beautiful butterflies. And I love how they um, make the plants. And I love the colors. Okay. Thank you. Paris will have the last word for today's show. Our series, D.C. in the Era of Climate Change, is supported by a grant from the D.C. Commission on the Arts and Humanities. 
A special thank you to Tiffany Aziz and Will Jones, Gerald Horn, and Chantel James. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. You can also write us at our website. We'd love to hear from you. If you are a listener and are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page, On the Ground Show. Our Facebook page has a picket sign with the green letters that say On the Ground. On the Ground Show is also on Twitter, and we are on iTunes under the title WPFW On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.